Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. And this is the drug price edition. This is also an Alpha Chat short, a new concept we're introducing. We, of course, have Alpha Chatter Box, our long form podcast. This is an Alpha Chat short. It's going to be a little quicker, a little punchier. We're going to do these now and again. We've got one today and one next week. Mary Childs, U.S. financial correspondent, joins me as co-host. Mary, hi. We need a better name for this. What's what's shorter than a chat? Like a like when a we quick. when you and I bump into each other and exchange pleasantries in the hallway or something. I think pleasantries is nice. Quip is good. Alpha, Alpha quip. pleasantries. Yes. Alpha nod. Alpha fist bump or That's something good, like that. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, and that voice you just heard is David Crow. All right. Who can't wait to jump in here? He's the U.S. business correspondent. That's as vague a beat as it comes, David. And I love it because it means we can just basically pull you in here for anything. All right. But in this case, we pulled you in here to discuss pharmaceuticals and specifically pharmaceutical pricing. All right. Here's the setup. Normally, a drug company says that the reason that they have to charge a lot of money for their drugs before that drug goes off patent is because it costs so much money to invest in the research that was needed to invent the drug in the first place to bring it to market. All this costs a lot of money. And then, of course, when it goes off patent, that's it. You can't make any more money. You did this long read in the FT that essentially found a wrinkle in that story. What was it? We decided to put the theory to the test. The argument that the drug makers always offer is that their products have built-in obsolescence, unlike any other industry. Um, once the egg timer goes off, once you lose your patent protection, generic companies can come in and undercut you by 98% or so. It's almost like you know someone making a, a direct carbon copy of the iPhone 10 years after. So a drug that maybe cost $20 a pill now costs cents or yeah, whatever. $100,000 a year you know, goes to cents. So we decided to put the theory to the test and it's just not quite true. Um, while a lot of uh, drug prices do fall after the introduction of a generic, there's a sort of long tail. There is this sticky set of consumers and doctors who still want the brand, and the price of the brand keeps going up. So we found that Prozac, which has been off patent for a number of years now, you can get as fluoxetine, which costs a few cents a pill, or you can buy it from Lilly, for 16 bucks a pill or you can buy uh, a female version pink prozac from allegan the only difference about this is it's pink and it comes in a box with uh, sunflowers on the front oh my god and it's supposed to be for a very severe form of premenstrual tension and that costs 16 bucks a pill too but the basic ingredients the ones that are thought to work are the same the basic ingredients or, or as we put it the active ingredient the drug the the chemical that actually makes the difference um now what can be different is the inactive uh ingredients the sort of binding agents they could be sourced from somewhere else and some doctors 
think that this matters, that, that this actually changes the way the drug interacts with the body. And this is the excuse that they offer when one asks them why are you still prescribing 16 bucks a pill Prozac. Okay. So how much of this is related to branding? I mean, how much is it just that you get attached to the certain name and they do such pushes in advertising? I mean, a lot of it is branding. A lot of it's uh, sort of playing on patient fears. Um, AstraZeneca make a statin called Crestor, which is um, controversial anyway, because a lot of people think it doesn't work any better than the statins that are already on the market. Um, But it's just lost patent protection. And it made a very big push to sort of talk to uh, the patients and say, you know, generics aren't the same. Make sure when you go and see a doctor, you're asking for Crestor. And then when he or she prescribes you Crestor and you go to the pharmacist and they try to fob you off with a cheaper generic version, make sure you don't get it. And there's this sort of big coaching website that tells you how to get your Crestor. Yeah, I should note that the the U.S. is almost unique in this sense, in the idea that drug makers are allowed to go directly to consumers like this when they market these drugs, right? I mean, this is something that when I talk to somebody in Europe about, uh, they almost can't believe that this is allowed. There's one other place in the developed world that it's allowed, and that's New Zealand. So with the exception of New Zealand, the U.S. is alone in allowing direct consumer marketing and it does make a big difference in in the uk the doctor is only allowed to write the generic name of the drug on the prescription and then it goes to the pharmacist if that drug happens to be you know a patent protected brand at the time they'll prescribe that but the minute it loses uh, patent protection they'll prescribe the generic and in many countries in europe the pharmacist is allowed to override the doctor so if they write lipitor on on the prescription, then they can prescribe the torvastatin, which is the generic version of that. So, David, um, in the wake of your article, kind of dispelling this myth, have have you gotten a ton of feedback or people coming to you saying, "Oh, you know, I didn't realize this," or or um, changing the way that they think about um, pharma and the reasons for these price hikes? I think that there's a lot of things in pharma that have been. Um, you know, accepted for a very long time. You know, one of the things that pharma companies do is as they're about to lose patent protection in those final few months, they uh, massively raise the price. They they sort of really wring the last few drops of profit. And quite often the payers and insurance companies don't do anything because they know it's a short-term hit. They have to sort of put up with it for three months, but then it will fall out of the system when they can get the generic online. And People say, well, that's just how it works. That's how it's always worked. And then you go to them and you say, but why? I mean, do people know this is how it works? Are politicians and payers going to stand for it in the long term? How big a part of your business is it? Do your investors realize that it might be a risk if there's further political pressure? And at that point, people start clamming up and, and sort of they don't really have any answers. Yeah, I was, I was also intrigued by some of the tactics uh, that these branded drug companies use to keep the generics from coming online sooner. In one case, I think you mentioned the idea that some of them actually pay off the generics to bring the generics uh, to market a little bit more slowly. I had no idea, number one, that was allowed. Uh, but can you talk about some of those other tactics and why it is that that doesn't run afoul of like just basic bog standard anti-competitive activity and why that doesn't uh, why that isn't regulated a little bit more? So there's pay for delay, which is supposed to be regulated, and, and the FTC has brought several cases against uh, drug makers. Oh, so they're not allowed? Okay. Well, they're not allowed to do it so brazenly. What, what you sort of have to understand is 
at the moment of a drug company losing uh, patent protection, it's not a sort of hard and fast date. They'll have one patent that covers uh, this part of the medicine and another patent that covers this. And quite often they do do deals with um, the generic in, uh, sort of insurgent that allows them to bring their medicine to market more quickly. So they say, okay, you know, we'll roll over on these patents, but we'll we want to keep it on the market for a little bit longer. And so there is a lot of negotiation that goes on around the exact introduction of the generic. The other thing that happens is evergreening. This is making very small changes to the to the medicine and then getting another couple of years on top of the patent. So maybe you change it. So it's a smaller pill that you say is easier to take for the patient. That presumably doesn't actually alter uh, the effectiveness of the drug itself. Not at all. And then the other sort of famous one is to combine it with something else. So uh, Allergan makes an Alzheimer's drug that a lot of people don't think even works. Um, And there's another Alzheimer's drug that's also given uh, to, to patients that's a generic and as they were about to lose patent protection on their drug, they created a pill that put the two together. And they said, well, you know, Alzheimer's patients, they forget to take their medicine. So this is a big medical benefit, you know, means that they, they sort of are less likely to miss doses. Of course, no research and development costs at all and a lot longer uh, life on the patent. So there's been sort of this big furrow around um, around the you know skyrocketing prices and and all this um, that you've been focusing on so diligently. How is that playing out in the political arena? And how has you know Hillary Clinton commenting on EpiPens? Is that is that necessarily a, a force for good? Is that going to affect real change? I mean, we have the whole Obamacare exchange thing as well, where a bunch of companies that you've reported on are threatening to kind of pull out of the exchanges and and which also sort of threatens the viability of Obamacare. Well, you know, the the US healthcare system is a mess. It's one of these things that you sort of can look at for so long and then your head just ends up hurting and you have to sort of go and lie in a dark room. I mean, it doesn't work in any way, shape or form. I mean, the EpiPen uh, controversy this week where Mylan massively increased the price of an EpiPen over the sort of eight years or so that they've Real quick, it. for listeners who haven't been following this, uh, tell them what Mylan does and tell them what an EpiPen is and what it's supposed to solve for. So Mylan is primarily a generic drug maker. So it makes most of its money by, you know, by making carbon copies of, uh, of, of branded drugs. But it gets most of its profits or a large chunk of its profits from this thing called the EpiPen, which is a, an emergency allergy injection that's often given to people who are having anaphylactic shocks, often children right. if you have a peanut allergy or something it's like a, that. It's a device for it's a making device. that injection. It's a device that, that sort of injects about a dollar's worth of drugs. But the device itself is protected by patent, the mm-hmm. actual piece of plastic. And uh, that's gone from about 100 bucks um, for uh, a, an EpiPen, for two EpiPens when Mylan bought it in 2007 to 600 bucks today. And there's been no change to the drug. But what this has opened is a whole can of worms because we saw pricing with Shkreli, Martin Shkreli, the enfant terrible that raised the AIDS drug by so much. And then we saw pricing with Valiant again. I think Mylan has been the best at at coming out and making an argument about why it's gone up so much. They make the point that, yeah, we've increased the price by that much. But look at what's actually happened to our revenues from that drug. Over the last sort of 
couple of years, they've been flat to down a bit. So where is all of that money going? Well, a lot of it is getting eaten up by the distributors in the middle, by the PBMs, the pharmacy benefit managers that negotiate, by the um, distributors that actually deliver it to the pharmacy, and by the pharmacists themselves. And so there's this black box at the center of drug pricing. And if Milan have achieved anything in their reaction to this, it's to sort of move the focus on to these sort of people in the dark shadows, if you like, of the American healthcare system that are also making a lot of money and so far have have been relatively immune to the political pressure. In other words, pointing out that this is broadly a systemic issue and not one where these companies always necessarily deserve to be demonized, although some of them do, right? Real, real quick, I want to stay on the point of competitive pressures here for a second. There was this magnificent blog post written at uh, Slate Star Codex that we're going to um, link to in the show notes for this edition, right? It made the point that you can't think of a, of a situation where like the chair industry or a chair company decided to raise prices to $300 a chair and then nobody could afford to sit down or the shoe industry raised prices to $500 for a pair of sneakers and everybody had to go barefoot, right? This happens in the drug industry because you don't have the requisite competitive pressures. And in the case of EpiPens, right, other companies have tried to bring a similar device to market. They were either stopped by the FDA, they couldn't quite get the science right, or something else happened where they couldn't bring those to market, which would be what you would expect is the natural solution to something like this. Uh, so tell us about that. How um, how widespread a problem is it? And is this maybe the definitional problem for this industry? I mean, it's unbelievable, really. I mean, how can you not get it right? I mean, the EpiPen has been around for years. It's a really simple device. It's an auto-injector with a little bit of adrenaline in it that you inject. You know, it can't be that difficult. And yet uh, Teva, an Israeli generic company, tried to bring a generic version out and the FDA knocked it back. Sanofi had a branded alternative that they had to pull off the market because of quality control problems. And a lot of people say this lies at the door of the FDA um, and maybe more widely at the broader political class because the FDA, there is this huge backlog of generic drug applications at the FDA that they cannot get through. They say they don't have the funding. They don't have say they have the staff. And of course, who is the the, the sort of body that has the power to increase the FDA's funding, well, that's Congress and, you know, nothing's moving very quickly there. I was just going to say, didn't, didn't Shkreli sort of try to also point to the, the black box, the people in the shadows and sort of blame insurance companies? I think one of his central claims in defense of his own price hike was, correct me if I'm wrong, that people who had no insurance could get it for a dollar or whatever and that it was only, you know, sort of putting all the pressure on the middlemen. Is that I mean, why did it not get traction when he said it? Well, partly because Shkreli did 5,000% overnight. Um, and so, you know, hospitals were literally having to make sort of very difficult decisions when they had patients. And I mean, it, the system just can't cope with that kind of egregious behavior so quickly. Secondly, I think because, you know, with a, a drug like EpiPen, what they've managed to do, Milan, is is actually show look, we have raised the price by this much, but we're not capturing that as profit. Somebody else does. They've got this chart. It's quite arresting. And it shows which part of that price tag goes to the pharmacist, the PBM and to the distributor. 
Okay, so so far we've pointed to uh, flawed regulatory design. We've pointed to this systemic middleman issue that Mylan has uh, brought to the forefront. Last question before we get to our long-form recommendations, David. We had economist uh, Heidi Williams uh, on our long-form show not too long ago. She studies patent design specifically. Uh, and one of her papers showed that actually – a disproportionate amount of investment goes to late-stage cancer drugs relative to early-stage or even preventive drugs, potentially. Now, some of that is because the science is hard to get right, which is understandable, but some of it is also because of the way that patents are designed and because of the way that FDA clinical trials are designed, right? They're shorter, these trials, for late-stage cancer drugs for the obvious reasons. A patient has less time to live, all right? But also, the patent begins at the point of discovery rather than at the point of commercialization. In other words, when the drug is discovered rather than when the drug actually goes on sale, which means that if you have a drug that might be a preventive drug or a drug that is for early-stage cancer, okay, that patent begins as the clinical trial is starting and that clinical trial is longer so that by the time you can commercialize the drug, there's only a few years left on the patent, right? which screws the incentive up a little bit. I guess, can you just talk about patent design? How much do these companies actually complain about this? Do they call for the whole patent system to essentially be reimagined, re-engineered? So there's two things here. Um, the academic is talking about the patents that sort of kick in at the moment of discovery. Then drug companies do get a period of exclusivity on top of that mm -hmm. after bringing the drug to market. So if they start selling it on January the 1st, 2017, they have between five and seven years of exclusivity that is given to them by the FDA, which hasn't got anything to do with their patents. And that's before people can start challenging the patents. So there are two sort of stop clocks, if you like. Mm -hmm. And really, they have five to seven years. It's, it's a pretty good deal. Um, regardless of what state their patents are in. The other thing with cancer is a lot of the money is being sort of funneled into that disease area because the payers so far have not kicked up a fuss when it comes to cancer drugs. For the most part, they are willing to pay for them. Now, there's two reasons for that. One is there have been a lot of good when, cancer. When you say the payers, who are you talking about? I'm talking about the insurance companies, the government through Medicare, Medicaid, um, and through the employers, so the Financial Times pays for our health care. And they probably contract through a, a pharmacy benefits manager, these PBMs that we're also talking about. And they're willing to pay for cancer drugs quite often because they are, there are a lot of big advances that are making, you know, are adding months or years onto people's lives and people think that's worth paying for. The other thing is it's a very difficult conversation to have. The payers struggle to say no you can't have this to someone that's dying of cancer it's sort of an easier conversation to have if you make drugs like valiant makes uh which uh are sort of toe fungus creams or something then you know maybe you could try something else for a while and see if that works so it's a sort of different area and i mean a lot of people think that's how the system should work you know the great big innovative advances that you know allow allow people to stay alive for longer is where the money and, and, and the sort of investment should be going. All right. David Crow has been writing about pharma all summer long. We'll link to all these stories in the show notes. But guys, uh, let's do long form recommendations before we go. Uh, Mary, what do you got for us? So mine's from a few weeks ago. Um, it's what it takes to clean the Ganges. It's in the New Yorker, and it's about the Indian government's efforts to clean up one of the world's most polluted rivers, complicated by basically everything. The story manages to touch on 
government corruption and religious histories and tensions because it is a holy river um, and just the, the massive effort and all the various pressures that the government's having to balance and the sort of slim odds of success. Um, the kicker, just to spoil it for you, is that um, if you can't deal with discouragement, India has no place for you. Oh, which, God. Yeah. That's a bummer promising. of a conclusion. It really wow. is. <laughs> uh, David. So also from The New Yorker, um, how the upright citizens brigade improvised a comedy empire. This is uh, a bunch of improv comics who have set up a massive business called uh, uh, UCB. And basically it sells improv training sessions, comedy improv training sessions to corporations. So it's a team building exercise. So if the FT wanted us all to get on a lot better, we'd go on to a sort of Saturday night live style training session and all pretend to be stand-up comics wouldn't you worry that that would like if it was taped that would get out into the public sphere right do you remember was it mary was it the bank of america guy who sang like uh, a rendition of uh, u2's one or something that then went like viral on the oh internet God, i'm not <laughs> familiar with this but i'm definitely gonna go google it yeah god well that's a, what i would be afraid of there's a long list of rules but it caught my eye because uh it's sort of made me think that the founders of the improv comedy movement would be spinning in their graves if they knew it had just become a sort of corporatizing empire and so nothing is sacred no nothing is sacred or anything that is sacred eventually becomes something that is what's the right word defiled i guess right i suppose it is yeah um okay uh regrettably this is the uh, new yorker trifecta here although in my (laughs) case it's for the new yorker radio hour uh, a couple of weeks ago, they had an edition that was all about Russia, um, and it was a kind of beautifully presented but also deeply informed episode because it was hosted by David Remnick, who, in addition to being the editor of The New Yorker, also himself was formerly uh, a reporter in Russia, so he knows quite a bit about it. Uh, it's a really fascinating glimpse into what's happening there and to the U.S. relationship uh, with Russia. And that is all the time we have for today. Thanks for checking in, everybody, to this Alpha Chat short edition. Mary, we, we got to work on the name. Although I Alpha Quip is, some, is winning, Alpha Quip would be fun, or Alpha Ping. I was thinking Alpha of Ping? terrible jargon that Lucy Hilly would object to. And that came Alpha Circle back. Ping is an awful word. It's terrible. Yeah, Alpha Ping is... Oh, I know, I know. I'm, I, I'm, I love I'm, it. No, I think it's great. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for being here, Mary and David. Thanks to our listeners. Call us at 917 551 5012. That's a US number, so the country code is plus one. If you are overseas, you can also send us an email to alphachat at ft.com. Please, please, please leave a review and rate the show on iTunes. It really does help people find us. Finally, you can get show notes and links to everything we discussed at ft.com forward slash alphachat. Find us on Twitter. Mary is at MDC. David is at by David Crow. I'm at Cardiff Garcia. Amy Keene doesn't just doesn't just avoid like recreational drugs. She also doesn't have to take any of the pharmaceutical kind either because she's just perfect in mind, body, and health. Thanks for everything, Amy, our editor and producer, and thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another edition of Alpha Chat. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? 
Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.